Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You're listening to Linux in the Ham Shack. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. Well, hello everybody and welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 236 of Linux in the Ham Shack. And uh, we're recording a little late tonight, but that's okay. We're just going to dive right into it. But before we do, we'll tell you who we all are. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD. All right, so that's who we are, and you are our listener. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> um, and, well, if you're hearing this, you obviously are. You, well, you, could, you could be one of us, too, because I actually listen to the We've show. We've got this podcasting thing figured out. Yes, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> After 10 years, it's incredible what you can figure out. Okay, so uh, we'll start here with some amateur radio short topics for tonight, since this is our short format show. Uh, next week, when we do our long format show, we have a fun show coming up. So you'll definitely want to tune into the long format show. We will have guests. I think it's multiple guests. Yes. Plural. Yes. It's, it's at least one guest, but probably at least at this point. Right. Yeah. Waiting for confirmation on another. All right. So hopefully multiple guests and it will be fun. We will have lots to talk about. So you'll want to be there for that. And we will record that one on time. Uh, so anyway, uh, Cheryl, since these are all short format stories, we can throw one your way and you can lead us off tonight in our amateur radio topics. Okay. That sounds great. Making sure I was on the right ether path. Okay, so, good. Because that's always important. Yeah, it's all, yeah. Yes, being in the right show is always a, a plus. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so for our first story, it's South African YOTA Yoda event approaching. The South African, let me try that over again. The South African Amateur Radio League, SARL, is hosting the event. Some 80 young radio amateurs are expected to attend and operate the ZS9 YOTA special event station from August 8th to the 15th. In addition to amateur radio, the week creates the opportunity to learn all about different nationalities and cultures, foster international friendships and goodwill, as well as learn new communication and technical skills. A press release indicates this year's camp will make the first Yoda event focusing on a train the trainer principle with uh, participants learning tips and techniques to start their own youth activities or programs when they return home. Highlights planned for the week include learning about software-defined radio technology, building, launching, and tracking a mini CubeSat using a high-altitude balloon. Participants will also learn about rapid deployment amateur radio, and they will build a QRPHF transceiver kit. All right. That sounds pretty fun for the uh, South African youth hams. Uh, Yoda, by the way, stands for youth on the air, not uh, or youngsters on the air, something along those lines. Um not a little green Jedi. Um, <laughs> Yoda. My OTA Yoda. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that sounds like a lot of fun. And it looks like they have a lot of uh, technical uh, and engaging and social aspects to the event. So that, that should be really cool. So um, look out for 
uh, ZS9 Yankee Oscar Tango Alpha on the air from the 8th to the 15th of August. Should be pretty cool. All right. So, uh, Bill, you want to read this one? Sure. The FCC dismisses a longstanding renewal application. So this is a uh, W6WBJ has lost his next lost the next step in his fight to remain an amateur radio operator. His decision not to appear at a pivotal hearing has waived his right to prosecute his initial application. It has been 10 years since the FCC set uh, Crawwell's uh, license renewal application for hearing, which was the center on whether he had violated FCC Part 97 rules in the early 2000s, in part by causing intentional interference, transmitting music, and using indecent language. And whether he was qualified to have his renewal application granted, Crowell, uh, Crowell argued <coughs> against the lengthy delay and further claimed that most of the witnesses would now be deceased <laughs> because they're OM <laughs> and the evidence stale. So uh, Crowell was fined $25,000 in uh, 2016 for intentionally interfering with transmissions of other amateur radios or radio amateurs and transmitting prohibited communications, including music. The FCC turned away his assertion of First Amendment protection. And this story comes to us from the ARRL. I hadn't heard about this, but this sounds like I think he was arguing that the process was taking so long that it should be invalid. Well, OK, yeah, the 10 years. That, that does there's there's a, a lot more long. to the story than what I put in here because right. we just read the uh, the high points, I guess. <laughs> right. <but laughs> so apparently yeah, this guy was yeah. kind of a jerk back in the day. He got his license yanked and he's still trying to get it back and still hasn't. So. Anyway, well, and apparently he's not breaker. he's not going to get it now apparently so. not it doesn't say he's out of options it says uh he's losing options apparently daily however right so. yeah we need uh continued stories like this of these uh pretty large fines and uh recent recent uh uh convictions here from the fcc to uh help uh control some of the activities on uh certain bands not not going to mention anybody specific <laughs> 20 meters somewhere in the uh, 14 three uh, plus range <laughs> possibly on 40 meters as well 80 meters we already know is trash so you know that's fine you guys can have 80 meters <laughs> right. that's only short distance communication so that's fine yeah yeah just just get off 40 and 20 come on <laughs> 20 is kind of like a, a crap hole <laughs> A lot of the time. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's a, it's it's a widely this. used band because it's pretty much worldwide most of the time. And yes. uh, so because it's highly utilized, you know, the greatest proportion of uh, lids will be found there. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. And they don't need a big antenna to make a big signal there. Very true. All right. So moving on, we have another story in our amateur radio topics for tonight. And this one is the AWL urges FCC to keep amateur radio satellite spectrum clean. Uh, the AWRL said it views as incorrect and overly strict the standard that the FCC has applied since 2013 to define what constitutes uh, an amateur satellite, forcing academic projects that once would have been operated in the amateur satellite service to apply for a Part 5 experimental authorization instead. Uh, quoting, there is no doubt uh, but that amateur radio should be protected against exploitation by commercial satellites and there should be a compelling justification for a Part 5 experimental license issued for a satellite experiment to be conducted in amateur spectrum, uh, so saith the AWRL. Uh, Resolution 659 adopted at World Radio Communication Conference 2015 included protective language against non-amateur satellites operating in amateur satellite spectrum, 
and the exclusion of any amateur bands from Spectrum that might be considered uh, at a future WRC for allocation to the Space Operations Service. So, again, that yeah. came from the ARRL. So, like, and I'm assuming because they can operate at such low powers up there that, uh, you know, you fall under a different classification. And I think that's probably why there's an issue because of the plethora of electronics to put them on the two meter band <laughs> and 440 band for, you know, basically broadcasting whatever telemetry and stuff like that, that they need. I mean, I really think, I mean, I would say, why, why are they not using the ISM bands and stuff like that? I mean, we have those for, for this specific use um, of, of doing uh, testing and measurement and stuff like that. Uh, I find it really odd that uh, this is an issue. Um, yeah, I just, I just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't get it. Why, why we have to deal with, uh, non-amateur satellites being in the amateur bands when there's already, you know, an ISM allocations for doing specifically what they're doing. Right. <laughs> it just, it just kind of just, uh, doesn't I think the ARRL, though, takes a pretty broad stance on protecting spectrum whenever possible. So I think that's just, well, they should, I mean, you know, especially when it comes to satellites, because, you know, if they if you have two satellites, even two amateur satellites crisscrossing, you know, where their orbits are close enough to where the footprints are going to be mixed and they're both, let's say, FM repeating type uh, satellites, they shouldn't be on the same frequencies and they should be coordinated that way so that their final TLEs, when they line up, do not interfere with other satellites in service. Right. You know, you don't want to get on there on an input and be crossing three or four satellites at the same time. I know we never had to worry about this in the past, but it seems that we get, we're getting a lot of these cube sats up there and uh, you know, they're really close in proximity to each other <laughs> and uh, it's starting to get a little, a uh, little active up there. I was surprised when we were doing that G predict episode, when I put in all the active amateur radio satellites, you could get a pass every few, I mean like every 15, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, and then of course you'd have a break, but I just was really surprised at how close they were. I remember having to schedule some time to like, oh, I'm going to do my satellite and, oh, I won't be like three hours or five, six hours to the next pass. And then it'll be days. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like now, I mean, you could be pretty active every day uh, with everything that's up there. So I, I think it's, you know, it's right now is the time to be prudent in protecting the uh, spectrum up there because it doesn't take much power. For them to have a big footprint down on the on the planet. Yeah, well, I know when I, I happened across Neil Rapp the other day, he was he was doing satellite passes from his car, and he was saying that he was only having to wait, you know, thirty forty minutes, you know, for the next one to come around. So, yeah, yeah, yep, not like the olden days. No, no, I'm an old geezer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to move on from our amateur radio topics to some open source topics for the evening. And uh, Bill, you found this one, which is kind of interesting, so I'll let you have at it. Yeah, this one actually has already made the rounds. Uh, I did find it when it first came out, but this is a malware was found in the Arch Linux AUR package repository. So uh, malware has been discovered in at least three Arch Linux packages available in AUR, uh, the official Arch Linux repository of user-submitted packages. Uh, the malicious code has been removed thanks to quick intervention of the AUR team. And this story came from Bleeping Computer when I originally caught it. And uh, there's been some follow-up stories and stuff like that. And there's still some questions on exactly how many more packages were, <laughs> were affected. Um, and uh, they kind of talked about, about how the security of uh, some of these things are uh, a little less than um, um, 
adequate, especially when, you know, if you remember, we were talking about the AUR stuff was uh, the Git packages. We were going directly into GitHub. And if somebody had their GitHub account, you know, attacked there or taken over, maliciously taken or what have you, you know, there's like layers of third parties right. <laughs> that you have to think about the protection and stuff like that, that, uh, you know, is then kind of brought into the AUR package uh, repository uh, through that through that aspect. So there's a lot of layers that stuff could be broken, not necessarily in AUR, but, you know, a connected app with AUR, you know, through the, the way it's packaged, whether that be Git or Launchpad or Bazaar or any of those other ones. Um, you know, it's very exposed and it's just, it's just one of those things. And, you know, this is not, it's not new to the repos. I mean, but Debian had this problem not more than a year ago. And, uh, who else was it? Slackware? Some other repository also got kind of burgled a bit. Maybe it was, it was Sousa. It, it probably bears mentioning though that, um, one of the keys about this article is the quick response to dealing with the malware. And that's one of the nice things about having, open source software is it's very easy to see when there's malicious code and quickly remove it. One of the, one of the uh, foundations of open source and, and why it's important. Yeah. And people being actively participating in those repositories. So it takes people to, uh, to make up that team. So. And things like version control are a wonderful tool for that because somebody who's actually following package updates and commits and quickly see the code that's been changed um, when they pull down and do a diff and say, oh, look at this. There's somebody threw a keylogger in here <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or a currency miner right. or something like that. Yeah, it doesn't take long. So very cool. Yep. All right. So uh, I'll let you do this one, too, uh, because you also found this one. So and this one actually sounds interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah, I originally found this on uh, Reddit, and I hadn't ran into it before, but this is a test Linux operating systems online. So this is a website. You'll find a selection of operating systems, which you can test online without installing uh, in the simplest way. Uh, there's no restrictions here. You can use all the functions of the system, uninstall, install software, test installed programs, even delete or format the hard disk or system files. Uh, you will see an overview of all the installed and working operating systems when you log in. And this is a distrotest.net. And uh, I did go in and try this just to kind of see what it's like. And basically, it builds up the system. So you go and pick which system you want, and it builds it up. And then uh, you basically start it inside the browser. And it basically works just like uh, like uh, VirtualBox once you have it going. And it was rather rather easy to kind of get going. And I actually went in and tried uh, <laughs> uh, Peppermint 9 because I obviously couldn't run it on my uh on my virtual box here on the, on the home, but I was able to boot it up and run it there and kind of take a look at it, uh, through the website. So I thought that was kind of a, uh, a neat tool. So, uh, check it out the next time you want to try a, an OS just to kind of take a look at it. And, uh, you'd be surprised. There's, there's a bunch of them on there. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> so, how broad is the spectrum of Linux distributions that they have available? It's okay. huge. <laughs> it's huge. It's huge. So, I mean, it's they tremendous. Have some boutique. Yeah, they have some, uh, you know, some, they have Antergos, they have Aptoid CentOS, uh, Blank On, Deft. I mean, just a lot of boutique. I mean, there's a, at least uh, about 60 or 70 here. So you could probably find it. You can even run Ubuntu Kailin. So if you really want the uh, <laughs> <laughs> all Chinese version of Ubuntu, that's the way to go. 
Um, yeah, so uh, it's yeah. If you want to try out a distro without you know even downloading the disk, this would be something to take a look at. Um, I believe the files, uh, your system expires after a short period of time, obviously, mainly just for, uh, you know, kind of testing it. So, uh, and their, their logo on their thing says, test it before you hate it. (laughs) (laughs) So they must know we've been looking at this. (laughs) Hey, it actually worked with Peppermint 9, which you couldn't do in your virtual machine test environment. Yeah, exactly. They figured something out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll even I'll even start up the next one we're gonna test here. <laughs> oh, you can try this one on that one too. This is one of the ones that's available. Yep, yep. Exactly. All right, so you can tell us all about your experiment with this. I don't know if you got a chance to look at it before. It says in the notes here that you're going to try. I don't know if you did, uh, but anyway, yes. we'll move on to our Linux in the Ham Shack segment for tonight. And there's a couple of stories in here. We'll let Bill have the first one, and then uh, Cheryl can read the next one. Yeah, because you can never get enough. Yeah, that's right. We can never have enough. Bill. <laughs> there is no too much bill. So, so this is all part of our distro hopping series, and uh, I decided to take a look at this. Uh, this, uh, um, uh, what am I saying? This Debian-based <laughs> operating system called Devuan or Devuan or Devuan or Dev One. I don't know. D E V U A N. And the version is ASCII, A-S-C-I-I, just like ASCII uh, character set. And uh, this one is proposed as if you hate System D, uh, this is the system you try. Because this is basically Debian without System D. And it uses OpenRC instead. And I took it uh, for a quick spin on the uh, virtual box here. And uh, I'm, I'm, currently, uh, uh, I'm currently booting it up over on distrowatch.net just to see it. And, uh, let's see here. Um, what did I like about it? It, it's a ran fine. You know, it's a, it's a Debian operating system. Uh, all the packages work as they should, like any Debian system. Once you get it going, the only thing I didn't like about this was the installation. It has a completely different installer that's more, uh, more like, um, uh, geez. It kind of reminded me of just installing just Debian, <laughs> meaning it's very, uh, yeah, very steps, lots of steps, not as, not as simple as Ubuntu. Uh, you can make some bad decisions, which I did <laughs> a couple of times. I, I still ended up with a system that didn't have a bootloader. I don't know how I did that, but somehow I missed that particular step, the hitting a yes or a no when I should have hit the other. So, uh, your mileage may vary with this. But once I did get it running, it uh, it worked uh, marvelously. Um, I'm trying to remember which because uh, I have it on the other computer, not on this one. <laughs> I was trying to remember which uh, which uh, was the desktop UI uh, that it had. It's probably the same as Debian. <clears throat> I can probably look it up real quick here. But anyway, um, yeah. So I gave this uh, a score just because of the installer, and it's probably similar to what I gave Debian nine when that came out of 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 like a 2.9 and uh you know it's still it's still fine it's probably better than that it's only because of the cumbersome install i just don't i i like how simple you know ubuntu and a lot of the other distributions have made installing the operating system you know it it shouldn't even ask you whether you want a bootloader in theory for most users because uh you know if they're experimenting with a live disk anyway they probably aren't <laughs> aren't a power user uh so yeah i think that could be some work that uh that maybe the debian team just needs to suck it up and and put a uh 
put an easy installer for uh, for most people and maybe have like an advanced button that says, okay, go back to the old way of doing it and ask a bunch of questions that, you know, you should just be able to go next, 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 next. type in your username and, and you're off to the races. So uh, they can make that a lot simpler. But uh, for me, I don't really care whether it's systemd or OpenRC. I don't, it doesn't really impact what I do. And I didn't see any great speed up improvements with one versus the other. So I'm, I'm just not sure if this is just a, uh, you know, some, you know, somebody's reason just, I don't like system D. Okay. Well, great. There's something else for you. That's the whole thing with uh, Linux is you can put whatever you like on there and take whatever you don't like off there. So 2.9, give it a try if you want to, if not, you're not really missing much. Well, it is interesting that OpenRC has sort of come about. I don't know how old the project is, but it used to be when you had a Debian system and you didn't like systemd that you just installed the older version of Debian that was uh, sysv in it. And now OpenRC, I gather, is trying to take the sysv in it system and make it dependency-based um, as opposed to strictly, um, you know, based on... Uh, simple rules like simple config files where you just tell the system what you want to boot in what order you want it to boot in um whereas system d has a lot more logic involved and and things like that and so this is kind of like trying to make uh, an easier to configure dependency based in its system i guess um would be openrc maybe it's uh, worth at some point taking a deep dive into the differences between the init systems because it uh, may impact somebody who knows yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, I guess I haven't really messed around with the init systems too much beyond, uh, you know, a few little, you know, system D scripts on my uh, d- droplets on uh, DigitalOcean. And uh, I've liked how those work. <laughs> and I don't remember initting a box down to like, you know, level three or something like that in a, in a long time. Yeah, I haven't done anything that actually required uh, booting the system into a different run level uh, than the main one in in. Yeah, quite some time, um, but <laughs> it's been a while. I remember my transition from SysV in it to System D was a rather horrifying one. So I, I've sort of made that change now, but it it wasn't the most graceful for sure. Wasn't that the same when we went to UDev as well? It's around that same time. Yes, I don't know it that they pretty, were. It was pretty ugly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember trying to rev a box between um, the old dev to uh, UDev, and yeah, it exploded on impact. <laughs> as as a lot of things have changed, certainly. <laughs> uh, interestingly, there was a there was this project called Wayland that everybody was going to start using, and then they started using it, and now everybody's not using it. So I'm curious to see uh, where the Wayland project is at this point. Maybe that's another thing we need to uh, look into. Because uh, I knew Ubuntu was using Wayland. I think it was Ubuntu or Mint or something like that was actually using Wayland as a default uh, X window manager or X um, server and then yeah. quietly stopped using it. So I'm pretty sure it was canonical. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And I think the, that they decided to walk away from it. So uh, we'll uh, take a look, I'm sure, uh, later on at the uh, future of, of X Windows. But anyway, um, we'll move on to another uh, Linux in the Hamshack topic. And this one was kind of interesting. I, I sort of stumbled, stumbled upon this one while browsing through Google News. So uh, since it's pretty straightforward read, I guess we'll let Cheryl handle it. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Horse Binary Telemetry and Free DV. David Rowe, VK5DGR, and Mark Jessup, VK5QI have carried out the first flight test of their new MFSK amateur radio high altitude ballooning telemetry modem. They've been working steadily on making the horse binary protocol easier to use for high altitude balloon telemetry. The objectives for this work are 
uh, testing the 4FSK binary open source balloon telemetry over the air on a real HAB mission, develop a GUI version of the decoder to make it usable by a wider audience, move the art of open source high-performance telemetry forward, make it accessible to Linux, command line, and GUI users alike, show how we develop open source protocols by blogging on our work, sharing our design and test techniques, and most importantly, the source code. And the source for this was Southgate ARC. Yep, and a link to the article from the Southgate ARC will be in the show notes. And also, uh, there are some links in there uh, from the article that reference um, David Rowe's blog and a couple of other links. I think uh, a blog from VK5QI as well. Uh, that discuss the project in more detail. So this this sounds pretty cool. They're actually hanging um, amateur radio based modems and uh, telemetry devices off of hot air balloons. So uh, I think this is something we mentioned yeah. before. There was actually uh, the notion of a project of keeping a network of hot air balloons around to provide basically a amateur radio based mesh network. And I don't know if this is part of that project or something on the side. Um, but hot air balloons are becoming a hot topic. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because generally, uh, you hear mostly about the uh, payloads for the little medium altitude balloons and stuff like that that use APRS or Whisper. So this would be something a little bit different. Yep. And David and uh, the project designers for things like FreeDB and all the other projects that they do, like Codec Two and stuff like that, are are highly focused on uh, open source. So everything they do. Uh, is put into the the world of free software. So very cool, and thanks to them for all the the good work they do. They must enjoy it because they do it a lot. <laughs> all right, so that's it. That's all the stories we have for tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to hit the social media roundup, and we'll let Cheryl uh, handle this as well. All right. So this time for our Patreons, we have William Heckelman, which is new, John Spriggs, Steve Sainer, Donald Gover, Robert Pitts, Paul Griffith, Jonas Rulo, John Zaruba Jr., Samuel Vimes, Steve Metcalf, Chris Beggio, and Darren King. For our subscriptions, we have Steve Hepler, Jeff Zimmerman, Michael Jopling, Steve Nichols, Todd Bowers, Thor Wiegman, Stephen Harp, Charlie Brown, Kevin Murray, Wayne Carpenter, Doug Redder, Bill Piotr, Dylan Angle, Alan Wilson, John Clark, Michael Aello, Robert Halliday, Brian Smith, Johnny Kinsey, Ronald Ike. Robert Yerke, Michael Conley, and Jeremy Hall. Whew, okay, <laughs> got through that list. For Facebook this week, we have Mike Baxter and Gerald Hansberger. No one joined us on Google+. On Twitter, we have at TechNative, at CT2IDL, at MazMattD, at AllMarshall, at J underscore Tarasovic, at Jared underscore the underscore geek, and at Redka Elena on YouTube, Jeremy Smith joined us. And on the mailing list, we have TJWOJCIK at me.com. Probably DJ, TJ Wojcik or what? So, you know, yeah, like something that. like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, we didn't have a name. We just had an email yeah. address. So. It's like all those Eastern European names like Shashin and Shashevsky, which are spelled completely different from the way they sound. Yeah, yeah. So, so. anyway, that's it. That's down to the end of the program. So, I guess we will check in the chat room. And the only person we had in there that we know of who is actually conscious is Ted. 
W-A-0-E-I-R, because we are recording this about two and a half hours late, so most of our usual listeners are probably already Passed snug out. in their beds. Yes. Yes. Um, but we want to thank Ted for hanging out with us, and uh, we hope that uh, everyone else who listens to this will be able to tune in to our next long-format episode, because we will have a cool interview with hopefully two guests, or maybe more, uh, but we've definitely lined up one, and uh, it will be a really interesting topic. So. Tune in for that. Yes. All right. Since I'm pretty sure there's not going to be a lot of idle chit chat in the chat room, since it's only Ted and he'd be talking to himself, <laughs> uh, we'll just go ahead and wrap this up. So thanks once again for listening to episode number 236 of Linux in the Ham Shack. We will catch you in a week's time uh, for a cool interview. So be there. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD73. Thank you for listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info. You can support the program by visiting the LHS Patreon page of patreon.com stroke lhspodcast or using the contribute link on the website. Get in touch via social media. The show has a presence on Google+, Facebook, Twitter, Discord and YouTube. Or you can drop an email to info at lhspodcast.info or record a voicemail at 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the IRC channel, LHS Podcast, on the Freenode IRC network. Also visit the online merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable LHS merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a Linux convention or ham fest. Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info or visit the website for details. The podcast is recorded live every Monday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Connect to the stream at stream.blacksparrowmedia.net colon 8008 stroke LHS live. Until next time, over and out.
Linux in the Ham Shack in the Linux in the Ham Shack logo are released under a Creative Commons Attribute Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.